0: Hi there. Thanks for subscribing to Are We There Yet? This podcast is a production of WMFE, a public radio station here in central Florida. We're currently in our silent drive, raising money to support shows just like this one. If you value the conversations about space exploration you hear on this show, consider donating to WMFE. You can do that by visiting WMFE.org slash support. You can also support this podcast by rating and reviewing it wherever you download That way more people can discover the podcast and explore exploration with us. Thanks. From the studios at WMFE in Orlando, Florida, this is Are We There Yet? The podcast exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. The International Astronautical Conference was last week in Washington, D.C. It's a global assembly of movers and shakers in the space industry, from government agencies to private partners. We'll chat with the host of the We Martians podcast, Jake Robbins, who attended the conference last week about the big news unveiled in space exploration. Then, NASA has its sights set on the moon, the south pole of the moon specifically, mostly because of evidence of water. But just how much water is there? And how do we know it's actually there? Well, we'll ask our panel of expert scientists this week. But first, the IAC. Space podcast host Jake Robbins spent the week at the DC event reporting on what was going on from moon missions to Mars rovers. And there was a lot for him to cover. Jake joins us now to talk about the IAC and just how big of an event this is.
1: Yeah, so the International Astronautical Congress is one of the largest space conferences in the world. So I think I heard the number this year is 6,300. Um, so it's a it's a quite a large conference. Yeah, it's the kind that you can you can walk around the entire week and never see someone that you were trying to find. So it's that kind of conference. Um, it's a very internationally focused conference. So you hear a lot of really you know interesting languages in the hallways. Um, and it moves around the world every year, so uh, it's in Washington D.C. this year. But uh, previous years saw it in in Bremen, Germany, in Australia, uh, and even in Guadalajara, Mexico, a few years ago. So, um, and then any of your listeners who are you know following the space world would probably remember this conference because this is the one where Elon Musk once announced the kind of you know, deep space Mars architecture that they've been working on for the last three years. That was in Mexico in 2016. So it's a pretty important conference, a lot of a lot of industry, a lot of policy, and a lot of uh, kind of, you know, technology and international cooperation in space.
0: Yeah, it is an opportunity for companies to kind of unveil big plans and make big announcements and really get some headlines. And, and we'll talk about some of those headlines in a bit, but I know you've been covering it the whole week, What's kind of been the overarching theme that you've seen kind of seep into different aspects of the the event uh, throughout the week at IAC? Yeah,
1: well, I think the the biggest kind of underlying narrative this year is is uh, the story behind NASA's Artemis program, right? So Artemis is the new The new program that NASA is really trying to get off the ground. Still, they only announced it in March, and they've been kind of furiously spending the whole year, um, you know, gathering support and trying to find the money and getting uh, international uh, space agencies to help out with it. And so you could kind of see that in every corner of of this thing. Um, The NASA administrator Jim Bridenstine has been bouncing from meeting to meeting and signing, you know, agreements or memorandums of understanding, all these kinds of things, really trying to rally support. It's it's kind of a, a mix between a space conference and a, a, a diplomatic event. That's definitely the one thing I've seen. And Vice President Mike Pence kicked off the show this week really hitting hard, that you
0: know Artemis and Moon mission, as you mentioned. Uh, Jim Bridenstine was kind of bouncing around, uh, talking to different agencies. We I mean, do you notice that there is some international support for this program.
1: Yeah, um, I would probably define it as kind of on the way there. So, yeah, like you said, uh, Mike Pence did kick off the uh, the whole event, which really kind of tells you the level of importance they're putting into this, so um, that the Vice President uh, took the time to come. And uh, he he walked, he did, a, uh, you know, kind of the, the right thing where he walked the line of ensuring that America had been, will, will be the leader of this program, but that th- the help of international agencies was was really, really important. And throughout the week, you saw sort of the the different agencies take their time to to you know make a comment on that. Um, the most important event was the heads of agencies panel, which had uh, six or seven space agency um, leaders on stage. And Jim Bridenstine kicked that one off and and talked about the importance of the Artemis. You know, it was really notable. He didn't talk about science programs at NASA. He didn't talk about aeronautics. He didn't talk about anything but Artemis. Um, so you already have Canada has, has pledged support. They were the first ones to, to tell uh, NASA they wanted to help out. And we have, uh, just kicking off the conference, leading into it, the Japanese space agency said that they wanted to participate as well. So the, the next big... You know, I would say the big two that, that uh, Jim Bridenstine has to lock up is the European Space Agency. So um, they're always kind of a big partner, and they will probably will be a partner. It's just kind of we need to work out the details. And then the Russian Space Agency as well is kind of um, not very far down the path of locking down those details. So those are the two, I think, that he's really, really hunting this week. As you kind of alluded to
0: this, Jake, um, this this is the time for these heads of agencies to practice a little bit of diplomacy, right? And and you know reach their partners and say hey I need help with this I need help with that, um, is that kind of what you're you're seeing with the U.S. especially with Artemis program when it looks like funding for this program is going to be stalled in the U.S.
1: Congress, are you seeing Bridenstine reaching out and trying to get some money
0: for it uh, from from his international
1: partners? Absolutely, yeah, and and you know the European one is a really notable example because the European Space Agency is sort of the overarching um, space agency that that takes funding from, from individual countries, individual member states. I think they have 22 member states uh, and kind of approaches the world as a unified budget. But the individual countries in Europe also have national space programs. So, you know, if you think of Germany, for example, Germany is a member of ESA, but they also have the German space agency DLR. So you're kind of running two agencies at the same time. And what I've seen from Jim this week is uh, not only trying to approach Jan Werner, who's the, the director general of ESA, in getting that you know, agreement signed up, he's also been approaching the individual space agencies. Um, there was an agreement signed with Italy. Um, we've seen him with, uh, I think, uh, I'm trying to remember the other countries, but it's been three or four other countries. But, um, so he's really trying every angle. That's, that's the thing that I've, I've noticed for sure.
0: Now, the, the Trump administration has set that 2024
1: deadline. Some talks
0: in Congress recently have kind of poured some cold water on that. And while folks in the space industry have also not thought that that deadline will be met, what, what kind of rumblings are you hearing uh, from the folks there? Is 2024 a date that NASA can make, or is it kind of pie-in-the-sky thinking?
1: I, I think if you, if you think about the 2024 deadline in different terms, I mean, if, if you want to walk in the whole complicated long arching program and just and that's just the first step of it. That's probably a little too ambitious. What I'm seeing is that industry partners are are they think it's possible. They're committed to doing it, but the 2024 deadline, the first mission that Artemis 3 mission will be a very basic kind of stripped down minimum requirements kind of thing. You know, there there's a lot of um de-scoping to make it possible. You know, do we need this extra this extra part here or this extra part here? Can we cobble together something from Um, uh, existing hardware that the companies already have. Uh, Can they work together to try and minimize costs? That kind of thing is definitely what I'm hearing from, at least from the industry partners. So I think 2024 is possible in terms of having a mission done. It's just I don't think that will look a lot like the long-term program that they want.
0: Now, as you alluded to this earlier, there has been some big news announced this year at IAC, especially with NASA's human landing system um, and Blue Origin, uh, what did you see when you were there?
1: Yeah, so uh, Jeff Bezos was here to uh, accept an award uh, on behalf of uh, his company and uh, he took the opportunity to sort of set up a little bit of a fireside chat and uh, make a, a pretty big announcement. It's probably been the the top headline for this whole this whole conference um, and he, uh, Blue Origin was in the in the running to participate in Artemis as part of the the Moon Lander, so the part that actually takes people down to the surface they're building uh, what 's called the Blue Moon descent stage, and they the NASA contract, like the RFP that 's out there, originally had this concept of taking all the individual parts of this landing system, so the part that takes astronauts down to the surface, separately from the part that takes them back to the to lunar orbit, separately from what's called the, the tug or the transfer vehicle, which kind of moves the lander from this low orbit state to the higher uh, space station that it's going to fly out of. So NASA was looking at all these individual components separately and kind of trying to contract them individually. Recently, they changed their mind and said, hey, we would also accept a single unified landing system. The reasoning there would be, uh, you know, NASA would say, we don't really care how you do it as long as it uh, does the job, really, is what you want. You want them to get the astronauts safely to the surface and back to, uh, to space again. And so Blue Origin has taken a pretty, pretty shrewd move to uh, organize uh, what they're calling a national team for a national priority, and they're partnering with other companies and building sort of a a unified system uh, with Lockheed Martin. So um, Blue Origin will do the descent stage, Lockheed Martin will do the ascent stage. They're partnering with Northrop Grumman to do that sort of transfer vehicle. Uh, And they also partner with a company called Draper who is going to do the the guidance and navigation computer software, which is notable because Draper was the same company 50 years ago that did that for Apollo. So uh, there's a lot of heritage in this team. And so Blue Origin's taking the lead on that. They're they're organizing the whole thing as sort of the prime contractor and together they're submitting one bid to NASA to do this. So it's pretty it's pretty remarkable to see these big companies kind of work together and uh, you know the the most interesting thing to me is that most of those other companies were Blue Origin's competitors. And so now there aren't really any competitors uh, besides maybe SpaceX, but there's some some issues with that that bid there. So it's it's almost a, a lock that they're going to get this contract, and uh, it's a it's a pretty big thing for sure. It definitely came as a surprise, didn't it? You wouldn't
0: think that Blue Origin, who's been very secretive and very quiet uh, about what they've been doing, would kind of connect with these kind of legacy industry leaders. I, I I would like to imagine what happened behind closed doors to make that work.
1: Yeah, it's 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 pretty different. Um, just like you said, Blue Origin in terms of these other three companies blue origin is the new kid on the block even though they've been around for for quite a while um they they have far less experience in space flight than the other companies do uh, and it's funny you mentioned that you know that it came as a surprise because here at the conference they have there's a mock up of the blue moon uh, cargo lander which is this enormous um uh spacecraft like a, you know i'm i'm 6 feet tall and i can almost walk underneath it it's 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 really really large and then just down the hall down the stairs at the other end of the conference hall is a mock up of the Lockheed Martin Ascent stage um, which is equally enormous and uh but it's just the top part of it and you know through through the the Monday before the announcement we were all kind of looking at it being like man it'd be really cool if we could just stack those on top of each other and uh uh it, every, no one was giving up the uh giving up the game but um yeah, that's that kind of the the funny story of the week
0: Well, Jake, what else kind of piqued your interest um, at the conference this week? Did you check out the trade show floor? Did you sit in some sessions? I mean, give us the rundown of your takeaways, you know, other than the big things. uh, What was really exciting for you?
1: Yeah. Well, through the week, there's, yeah, the exhibition hall is probably the other big highlight. So this is a, a giant kind of trade show space where all sorts of companies are trying to make their mark. Um, and uh, you know, network and 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 make deals behind the scenes. It, it's it's really a deal making conference. you can even see that in a lot of the booths where they'll have sort of a, you know a front facing table with pamphlets and someone to talk to you about what the company's doing. And then in the back part of the booth is literally a, a uh, you know a, a throw throw together meeting room to talk about business and sign stuff. So um, it's definitely a, a working conference in that respect. Um, the, the trade show was was really interesting because. you you just got to see all these different uh, international agencies have their booths. So you walk down the kind of road, and then you see the Australian Space Agency and then the Belgian Space Agency. Uh, The United Arab Emirates is here, which is kind of a a really new space agency that's trying to make their mark. Uh, Japanese Space Agency, all these different kind of cultures coming together. And then it's all mixed in with industry. So you see uh, a lot of small space startups that have... Uh, very small booths just really trying to you know get their foot in the door versus someone like Lockheed Martin who uh, had a giant kind of uh, display with VR setups and a coffee bar and, and all sorts of really fun stuff there. So that was definitely a highlight. Uh, I definitely spent a lot of time in there just trying to uh, meet people and see what was going on and have some interesting conversations. And then alongside the trade show you have... The, the, there's kind of the, what's called a technical program. So there are all these little meeting chambers around the outside. And individual uh, engineers and policymakers and scientists are giving kind of talks on the work that they're doing. Uh, it's a lot of content. There's you, know, you couldn't go to all of them even if you wanted to. Uh, there were some really interesting ones on Mars, which is a, a topic that I'm definitely interested in. So seeing updates on some of the Mars spacecraft uh, that are all traveling next year or so. Next year's a big launch window. Uh, NASA is sending a spacecraft to Mars. Uh, the Europeans are sending a spacecraft to Mars. The United Arab Emirates are sending a spacecraft to Mars. The Chinese are sending a spacecraft to Mars. It's sort of a, a flotilla of Mars spacecraft going there next year. So I got to see a lot of updates on that from the, from the agency heads, which is definitely interesting. Uh, and then I'd say maybe uh, some of the other uh, plenary talks were definitely highlights. Uh, we saw... An update from NASA on the Europa Clipper, which is a really exciting spacecraft that's going to be uh, traveling to that Jupiter's moon Europa and to try and sample some of the uh, the vents. That, you know, this moon is shooting off water into space, and 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 who knows what could be under the ice there? It could be it could be life. It's definitely an environment that would be um, unsurprising to hold life if it were here on Earth. So that was pretty exciting. Uh, we saw. There was a commercial uh, astronaut, suborbital astronaut panel. So this was members of Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic who were both competing to send people to space on these kind of short little hops, which was pretty exciting. It was really, Brendan, it was a really broad conference. There was just a lot going on. And uh, I think every individual attendee can really make the conference what they want to make it and, and have a completely different experience, which is really, really exciting.
0: Well, I'm glad you're able to share your experience and your reporting with us. Um, but before I let you go, I have to pick your brain because uh, you're my go-to person for what's ahead for Mars news, Jake. Um, what are you keeping your eyes on uh, when it comes to exploring the red planet? What's the next big thing?
1: Yeah, well, I think I, I'm, I'm laser focused on this launch window that's coming up next sun, uh, next summer. So July of 2020 is when those four spacecraft are going. Um, it's the flotilla of spacecraft. It's the, like the Mars caravan. I don't, I don't know. We need to come up with a good branding for it just to, to make it really exciting. Um, but I mean, NASA's, uh, flagship rover Mars 2020 is probably the, the headline of that, of that group. It's a really exciting spacecraft going to a place called Jezero Crater. It's going to be taking samples of Mars and putting it in kind of like a, a little box that's going to be left on the surface for pickup later, uh, which will be the first, Kind of unadulterated samples that we'll bring back from Mars to Earth. So that's really, really exciting. Uh, the Europeans are also sending the rover. It's called the uh, uh, the mission's called ExoMars and the rover is called the Rosalind Franklin. And uh, it's really exciting because it has a two meter drill, which is a, a huge, huge drill. Um, now, that one I am keeping an eye on because they have had some problems with their parachutes and so. Uh, That one's a little less certain at this point, but based on what I heard this week, it sounds like they know what's going on with it and they're confident they can fix it in time. Uh, But that one will really come down to the wire. The Chinese mission is is really, who knows? We don't get a lot of information from them. Uh, It's supposed to be an orbiter, a lander, and a rover, which is very ambitious for their first mission to Mars. Um, But uh, yeah, I I don't have hardly any information on that, so I, I can't tell you a lot what's going on there. Um, and then the the United Arab Emirates. So this is again, it's their not only their first mission to Mars, but it's they've only done three or four satellites. Um, they're a very young space agency, so it's a very ambitious mission for them to send an orbiter there. Uh, but speaking with some of the attendees here, it sounds like they are very um, they're they're on their game. They're 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 taking their time, they're being careful and really uh, understanding what's going on with their with their spacecraft. They're doing the right work in reaching out to partners who have the experience and getting them to you know, collaborate. So I'm pretty excited for that mission. If it's a success, it will be a really big, uh, it'll be a good kind of heartwarming story for them, for sure. Well, it sounds like collaboration is a common
0: theme throughout the week, and um, which is really cool to see, isn't it?
1: Oh, you better believe it.
0: We've been speaking with Jake Robbins. He's the host of the podcast We Martians. He also co-hosts the podcast Off Nominal with Anthony Colangelo. Jake Robbins has been covering IAC all week in Washington, D.C. Jake, thanks for speaking with us.
1: Hey, thanks for having
0: me on. Anytime. As we heard from Jake Robbins earlier, NASA is focusing on a new moonshot called Artemis. The agency plans to land humans on the south pole of the moon, partly because it has water. Well, how do we know that? Well, I put the question to our expert panel on this week's I'd Like to Know segment. UCF planetary scientists and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Addie Dove and Josh Caldwell are here to answer that question. Addie begins our conversation by answering my question. Just how did scientists discover water on the moon in the first place?
2: Um, spacecraft. For the most part, uh, which is cheeky. It's a little bit of a cheeky answer. but um, <laughs> So, we know that there's water on the moon from orbital spacecraft. So, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter that's been orbiting the moon for over 10 years now. Um, from a big piece of data is from the L-Cross impactor. So, there's a spacecraft. Um, also about 10 years ago, that impacted on the lunar surface in the South Pole. And it shot up this big plume of material. And a lot of what we saw come out of that was water, the signature of water.
0: Now, it was the impactor, so its job was to crash into the surface? It
2: was, yeah. So the L-Cross spacecraft, its its whole purpose was to crash into the lunar surface. Um, and so they had um, a, an orbiting spacecraft looking at the the plume of debris that came up and ground-based telescopes looking at it uh, to, to see what signatures they would have of different elements We strangely saw like mercury but also a lot of water and sort of silicon and other elements you'd expect to see.
3: The same yeah. uh, technique was done with the deep impact mission which launched an impactor into a comet. So you dig a hole, you get to see underneath the surface because this, most of the water is, uh, well, at the, at the south polar region you have water adsorbed Individual molecules Mm -hmm. sticking to the rocks on the surface because that's the part of the moon where the sun don't shine. Mm -hmm. You have these permanently shadowed regions. And so it can be cold there. So if a water molecule that comes from a comet perhaps that maybe hit the moon at some point and the water evaporates or Mm -hmm. sublimates – Those molecules sort of hop across the surface of the moon, and if they end up landing in a place that's very cold, they'll stick there. Mm -hmm. So you can accumulate water in the south polar region where it's permanently shadowed or shadowed for very, very long periods of time. So that's why there's particularly particular interest in that region.
0: Mm-hmm. And what I'm gathering is if you don't know something, crash something into it, right? That's a, yes.
2: That's a pretty good technique for uh, what we do <laughs> yeah. a lot of times in science, if we can. the
0: large, <laughs> Just smash something into right, it. you figure
3: it out. The Large Hadron Collider, you know, <laughs> to find smash a Higgs things boson, together. just smashing things together at really high energies.
0: <laughs>
2: Nature does it anyway, so we just try to repeat that a lot. All right.
0: Yeah. So we we scientists have smashed into the moon, looked at these kind of signatures of, of what chemicals are, are down there. Do we have any idea of what form this water is? Are there rivers underneath the surface of the moon? Is it ice? What is it?
3: It's definitely not rivers. And just to mention another way that we know there's water products there is from gamma ray neutron spectroscopy. So the universe provides for free very high energy photons which can penetrate into the surface and they scatter Mm -hmm. off the nuclei of different atoms different ways. And so that's a way to sort of look at the elemental composition of the stuff underneath the surface as well. So there are all those different measurements that we're seeing. There are some water molecules down there, but not flowing rivers.
2: Not flowing rivers. And actually, usually what we see is evidence that there are like OHs, so an oxygen and a hydrogen or a hydrogen. Um, Most of these uh, signals we see actually tell us it's those types of molecules, not specifically H2O for Mm. water. Um, But... Generally, we can infer that if we see those things, there's also water there. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a lot of spectral signals that are easier to see from, for like an OH signature than there are for water. Um, and so that's a lot of what we use is we see, okay, well, there's probably something that's the right chemical composition on the surface. It's the right approximate amount of those elements. So it's probably water.
3: And a lot of the interest in water isn't for the H2O. It's for the h and for the O. Right. So as long as they're there, as right? As long can... as they're there. In fact, if we found H2O, probably the first thing you do is split it, it up. It <laughs> so you could use the O to breathe. Uh-huh. And you could also use it as oxidizer for, the, in other words, the thing that burns the fuel that you've got. Since there's no air on the moon, you've got to bring your own oxygen.
0: Mm-hmm. So very valuable if, you know, we're exploring the moon and want to use the moon as a, a jumping off point to go someplace else, like Mars or deep space. Mm-hmm. Um, how sure are are we of the amount that is underneath the surface?
2: So not very sure. Um, we've seen, we can see that there are some like daily changes in the amount of uh, sort of little vapor on the surface of the moon at different places. Down in the South Pole, um, there are some newer studies that have shown that there's probably more buried water than we expected. Um, so it's maybe ice that's mixed in with the the regolith and the dirt down there. Um, but we don't have a great, grasp on exactly how much it is, and there's been some numbers like billions of tons thrown around that are probably... High, optimistically, overest- optimistic, <laughs> um, but there are is there are ways to get water out of like rocks and other materials. So mm-hmm. there's probably a good amount there that we could use for in situ resource utilization. I S
0: R U, using what you have to make stuff, living off the land, living so off to
2: the
3: speak.
0: land. Yeah.
3: yeah, the yeah, I think the measurements show that there's enough there to make it worthwhile, mm-hmm. at least for a while. Mm-hmm. So there's enough there to get started and do something. It's not we definitely have confirmation. There's enough hydrogen and oxygen down there, that we should be able to get something useful out of it.
0: Mm -hmm. And how groundbreaking of a discovery was this um, after scientists smashed into the surface and found (laughs) these chemical signatures?
2: Yeah, I mean, for a long time, we've always... literally groundbreaking. Literally (laughs) Literally (laughs) groundbreaking. I'm glad uh,
0: someone caught that.
2: (laughs) Here for the puns. The... So for a long time, we thought the moon was bone dry, quote unquote, and that there's just no water. Um, And it was interesting scientifically and as a rocky body. um, But the idea that there is water and maybe significant amounts in these polar regions um, really changed the idea of how, like we said, how you could go and use the resources that are there as opposed to just having to bring everything with you or um, just sort of thinking it as a place that we would maybe have to use the rocks or the other things that are there but wouldn't have... Oxygen and oxidizers and fuel and stuff like that.
3: Mm-hmm. Definitely water's been discovered on Mars a lot more times than it's been discovered on the moon. True. So yeah, when we see water on the moon it's 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 more of a thing mm-hmm. than <laughs> when we see it on Mars.
0: <laughs> it's a thing we'll be keeping our eyes on. We've been speaking with two thirds of the hosts of Walk About the Galaxy Addie Dove and Josh Caldwell. Thank you both. Thanks. Happy to be here. That was Addie Dove and Josh Caldwell, planetary scientists at the University of Central Florida. They also host the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Check it out wherever you download this podcast or go to their website, walkaboutthegalaxy.com. And if you have a question for the I'd Like to Know segment, send it in. You can do that by email. It's wmfe.org. You can shoot me a tweet at awtymars or find the show on Facebook. Search for Are We There Yet? Podcast. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Be sure to follow us on social media for the latest in space news or head on over to WMFE.org slash space. This podcast is a production of WMFE and support for it comes from listeners just like you. To show your support with a donation. Visit WMFE.org slash support. Until next time, I am Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.